Thanks, Hannah. Good morning, everyone. I'm very glad that you're here. You know, in the stories of Jesus found in the Gospels, uh, we see Jesus again and again crying out, making an offer to people like that found in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But the remarkable thing is Jesus makes this offer again and again for people to come and receive from him what they desperately need. Most of the people leave not having received it. Most of the people in the stories in the gospel, when they come in contact with Jesus, do it in such a way that they don't receive what they desperately desire. As we look at this passage, it's a story of that again, of three different interactions with Jesus where some people are getting what they desperately need and some people aren't. Some people are, are just showing up and returning having received nothing or in some cases, in some cases being further from their rest than they, when they began. How do we understand that, and is that still happening today? Do people come to church today? I mean, right now, there are millions of people going to church. How many of them are returning to their homes having received the rest for their souls that they need? And what's the reason? Why, why is it that people are not receiving? Is, it, is the problem with God? Is Jesus' offer faulty that it's only good for a few? No, the, the truth is that Jesus always says yes to his disciples' deepest yearnings. He says yes. He's, his heart is for your redemption. His heart is for your peace. His heart is for your healing. What's the problem? Why aren't we receiving what Christ wants to give us and has the authority to give us and the power to give us? Well, I want to use a story to help us understand because I think we think if we show up in any way before Jesus that he'll just take us and he should just take care of the rest. But we wouldn't, and the question, Mark just asked me this, saying it this way, and I like this. Would we accept our own apology if we apologize the way we do to God? Would we say that's good enough and we would restore a relationship with somebody? If I came and lived in your house, so I'm in hit hard times and you take me in and, and you're driving me around on your dime and you're paying for my meals and you're taking care of me and we, eventually you run out of money because you've been taking care of me, so we go to the bank and I'm sitting in the chair, the, the, the seat next to you while you're driving and you put your bank card in and you put your code in in a way that I can see it. Now we go home to your house and that night, I take your keys and your card and your code and take $1,000 out of your checking account. Now I have to craft an apology that you're going to accept in the morning. What does that apology have to look like for you to accept it? I mean, are we really thinking correctly about how we come into God's presence? And is it an entirely different set of rules when it comes to somebody wronging us? So the morning comes and, and you see on your app on your phone that $1,000 has been taken out of your checking account. And 
You come down and say, hey, what's up? What'd you do? Well, as we look at these three passages, these three sections of this passage, in each one is a prayer. Lord, if you will, you can heal me. Lord, if you will, you can forgive me. Lord, if you will, you can enter my life. And I want you to know that the disposition of God is for your healing. Not necessarily physical, for your healing, for your forgiveness, for your fellowship with him. So let's look at verses 12 through 16 and and see a man who received from Christ what he desperately needed. In verses 12 in, in uh, chapter 5 of Luke, it says, while he, was on, while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded for a proof of them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him to be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Jesus, as he was traveling around in Galilee, was healing different people when along comes a man with leprosy. And the Greek word here talks about skin disease. It's not just Hansen's disease or leprosy as we know it. But there was an understanding with certain skin diseases that it made you unclean and you couldn't go into the temple. So in many ways, they weren't as worried about catching the skin disease as they were about this being an issue of uncleanness from the Old Testament. So if someone had skin disease on their face or in a way they couldn't hide it, they would have to call out, unclean. Maybe we've seen it in the movies. They couldn't approach somebody because they were taken out of the community. They were put into a place where other people with diseases, maybe not the same as theirs were. It was an awful existence to have skin disease in the first century. And here into the town, this man comes and look at how he comes. Look at the humility that he comes with. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him. Compare that with your apology to God or your approach of God. He saw him and he fell on his face and he begged him. There was a humility that was in this request. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Lord, if you will, and notice the difference in the words, the healing for him had to do with sin. It had to do with the cleansing of his heart, had to do with the cleansing problem that he had, and it was just put on display with this skin disease. For him, it was spiritual, it was moral. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. I have to tell you, there is all kinds of wrong in verse 13, except if you're Jesus. The wrong is, is that he wasn't, you weren't supposed to touch people that were unclean because you could now not go into the temple and serve. That was the law. So if you touched a dead body or if you touched something that was unclean, you were now had to be, go through a cleansing process for cleanness. But the picture here is that Jesus' cleanness outweighs our evil. Jesus' healing 
over, he can touch us. He can come close to us and not be stained by our stain. He actually takes our stain away. But it, in his approach, there's a humility, and this man gets what he desperately needs. He asks him, he asks him with humility, what would it be like if I came to you and did it without humility? Have you ever apologized without humility? I would argue that most of our apologies are without humility. Most of them are qualified. You know what a qualified apology is? It puts but right after I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but you shouldn't have put your pin right there. You know I'm going through a hard time, man. Why would you leave your car keys and your card and wallet out there where I could get to them? Why would you show them? You almost, I mean, come on. You almost, you made it too easy for me. It's mostly your fault, but I'm sorry for my part. I'm sorry that I got angry, but you make me angry. I'm sorry that I said words that I shouldn't have, but you deserved it. If I apologize to you for stealing $1,000 and qualify it, do you accept it? Why do you think God will? Why do you think God will accept your pride as you come before him? It's a core problem for the people, the multitudes of people that come to Jesus. They come to judge Jesus instead of humble themselves before him. Did you come desperate today? Jesus came to say yes to you. How are you coming? Lord, if you will, you can heal me. Well, Jesus cleanses him, and immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof. Again and again in the, in the Gospels, you're going to hear Jesus say, don't tell anybody what you found out. Why is that? It isn't that he doesn't want them to speak of the fact that Jesus is going to heal and cleanse their hearts inside. It's that there is a fervor that happens around healing that isn't what he intended. And we'll see that in the next passage. He heals so that people can know he's intending to heal what's wrong inside. Everybody that Jesus healed eventually died. Did you hear that? Everybody that Jesus healed eventually died of something, a disease, old age, something. Every one of the apostles who had the gift of healing did not get healed. I mean, maybe they were dying and they said, can we heal this one? And Jesus said, no. Healing isn't his main aim physically. The main aim of Jesus is to heal spiritually. So he says, don't tell anybody about this. Go and show yourself to the priest. Why go show yourself to the priest? Well, in the Old Testament, when someone was unclean, the priest would be the one who would come. It was a spiritual issue first. When you had something like mold or something was wrong with your body, there was a spiritual side to it. And you would go to the priests and you'd find out that you were unclean. And in order to come back into the community and to be ready to go back into the temple, you'd have to go back to the priests. And Jesus is saying, come under that law as Moses commanded you and offer for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now, I don't want you to be misinformed and think that physical illness is 
always related or even often related to spiritual illness. At the same time, I do not want you to be misinformed that all of our physical illnesses are absolutely related to our sin. You hear the difference? It's not personal, but corporately as a sinful people, evil is happening in this planet and illness is happening in this planet because we sinned. That was not what Jesus intended. He, and he'll be restoring us one day where there is no more physical ailments again. But first things first, he's going after our hearts. Well, as usual, the people went on and talked about it. I mean, the, the word passed around in verse 15, but now even more of the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. And he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. What did he pray about? What was, he, what was Jesus trying to do? He was trying to start the church and save the world. And so many came to him and received nothing. And his desire was to heal them, their hearts. Lord, if you will, you can heal me. Lord, if you will, you can forgive me. If the first section, maybe our apologies, maybe our approach of God lacks humility, I would argue that maybe our approach of God lacks tenacity. Look at this as we read on in verse 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a, a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, he went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus." And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus perceived their thoughts. He answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you? Or say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. There is a tenacity in this story that is that is present and a lack of tenacity that is also present. The Pharisees and the teachers have the seats. They're sitting close. They're listening to Jesus. They're weighing Jesus. They're deciding if he's a good guy. And by the end, they're judging Jesus. Picture them sitting there in their pride, not raising a hand to help the guy who's trying to get in. There's a guy right outside the door who is trying to get to Jesus and they can't be bothered to move to get him into Jesus. There's no concern in their hearts for the person who's dying outside or struggling outside. But they would not be dissuaded. They know that Jesus' heart is to receive them, even if all of these other people's hearts are suspect. So they go up on the roof. Some men were bringing a man paralyzed and seeking him, being alone. And 
and lay before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. I love this picture. I love the, you know, how hard was it for to get him on the roof? Don't care. How hard was it and, and who were they going to offend by cutting a hole through the roof and dropping him down? What if it rains tonight? Not worried. My friend needs to get to Jesus. What if it costs us something? Not worried. My friend needs to get to Jesus. I wonder if I have this kind of tenacity for you in prayer. Because that's my picture of what prayer is. This, is. this is altered how I view intercessory prayer. I think prayer is me carrying you to Jesus and you carrying me to Jesus. What's our tenacity in our prayer? Do we, do we really want our friends to be helped? Do we want, do we need, like, like there's nothing else that re, is required of us than right now to get this person before Jesus. I also love that in this passage, they don't say anything. There's nothing recorded that they say. This guy drops down and verse 20, and when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. What was the faith? What did they see? It's the actions that they had that declared what they believe. It's the actions that you have that declare what you believe. So in the morning when you come and confront me about the thousand dollars that I stole from you, I might say really, I might craft a really cool apology. Like I might, might, I might have tears, but if I don't change anything, am I really sorry? If I steal $1,000 from you again tomorrow, how much did you like the apology of the day before? If we come to God and say, I am so sorry for my sin, what's for dinner? It speaks to what's going on in our hearts. We have, I mean, it's like we're trying to do a formula, check the box, I'm sorry, and I'm wondering if you would accept that kind of apology. Check the box, I'm sorry, about the thousand bucks. Can, what are we doing today as you drive me around and pay for my lunches? Anybody getting ticked? Let's be honest. I'd be, this guy's out, out the door. I'm not as forgiving as God. But God is incredibly forgiving. Just the fact that they came before him they saw their faith and said, man, your sins are forgiven. The scribes of the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies, who can forgive sins but God alone? They're there to judge. They're there to weigh. They're not there for healing. What did you show up today for? Did you show up to judge or to get healing and help and Peace. To offload your struggles on God. Humility, tenacity. Jesus goes on to heal, and I want you to see how he answers about healing. When Jesus perceived their thoughts. I don't know if he read them on their faces or used his ability to see into people's hearts, but he says, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier? Say your sins are forgiven you or rise and walk? Anybody else here can say rise and walk? And now he speaks to the theology of why he heals physically, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. 
He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. He's healing people physically. And sometimes he answers our cries for healing physically so that we know what he's really trying to do is to get us home to our ultimate healing and forgive us. Jesus had authority to heal as much as he wanted to. He could have opened a hospital. He was trying to start a church. Best hospital ever, I'd go. (laughs) And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. They're looking at what he did, but the reason this man received his help is because of the matter of humility and tenacity. He would fight for what he needed. You know, there's two passages that I want you to think around about around tenacity because we get this wrong. Tenacity could very easily become works-based. I'm going to do a lots in church. I'm going to go to church a lot, and then God will like me and give me what I need. Maybe I'll lengthen my prayers, and when I lengthen my prayers... That will look like tenacity. I'm just going to say again and again. I'm going to put it on rewind. I'll put it on my recorder on my phone. God, please help me. God, please help me. God, have mercy. God, have mercy. And now I'm no longer engaged with what I'm saying, but because I say it a lot, then God's going to hear it a lot, and that's tenacity. That's not tenacity. David talks about that in in Psalm 51, 16, and 17 after he's had maybe the biggest failure of his life, certainly the most public failure of his life. And he's crying out in, the, in equally public fashions for everyone to hear. And people now use it in their songbook in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, his repentance, because he doesn't care if all of you think poorly of him and the, all of Israel thinks poorly of him just if he gets from God what he desperately needs. How blessed is the man who is forgiven. How blessed is the person who receives what they need. Well, in one point of honesty in Psalm 51, 16, 17, he says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. He's talking about going to the temple and religious activities. You don't even want me to show up anymore. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. He goes on to talk about how then you'll receive back the the gifts. Then you'll want me in the temple. But right now there's a problem with my heart. My heart needs to be broken over my sin. Anybody here want to hear that my heart is broken over the thousand dollars? Anybody want to hear that I'm, I'm more upset about it than you are? Or do you want to see trite? In James 4, 9, speaking of how we return to God, there are verses that you can get through in 10 minutes on this track back to God, except for verse 9. It says, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. In your repentance, It requires a broken heart. And broken hearts don't look like, I'm sure sorry I sinned. We good? That's not what forgiveness and apology looks like that actually heals relationships. 
Why do we think God's different? Lord, if you will, you can forgive me. One more thing on tenacity before we go to integrity. I've said many times that when you're looking to come into God's presence, you don't need to come up forward and pray. But there is a benefit to coming forward to pray. I remember a time in my life when I was sitting back, it was when there were pews in the church, and I'm sitting back in a pew in the church, and the pastor said, had an altar call, and he said, okay, come forward if you need this. And I had it go, you know what was going through my head? What will people think? Who cares what people think? Are you desperate? Can you imagine the four guys on the roof? Well, I'll drop you down, but what are the neighbors going to think? It all depends how desperate you are. It all depends on the tenacity that you are pursuing Christ with. Do you want to be among the multitudes who go home with nothing? I would argue that there is a time to put that aside and come forward and pray. It does not mean that's the only way, but later on today, the elders are going to stand up front and you are welcome to come up and pray with them. And it's not that the elders don't need it also. The elders need the prayer too. All of us need the prayer. But there's something about owning it enough in front of the community that I would rather have all of you despise me if he just gives me what I need. Lord, if you will, you can forgive me. Lord, if you will, you can enter my life. Look at verses 27 through 32. It says, and after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I love this scene. I, love, I can't tell you, I have, I have tried to envision Jesus in this moment where he's with the tax collectors and the sinners at this party, making them feel loved. And I, I just, well, let's look at it. Let's open it up. First thing that happens here is Jesus is walking probably through Capernaum as Levi is in his tax collector's booth. And he says to Levi, Matthew, follow me. And Levi leaves everything. All right. What's in the booth as he's leaving it? All the money that he's fought so hard for? He leaves it all behind because Jesus is worth following. And the fact that he picked Levi is maybe the most offensive move so far of Jesus' career in ministry. The tax collector is the slime of the earth. He's the unredeemable guy. He's the guy that is stealing from his neighbors to send money to Rome and to keep money in line in his own pockets. The way tax collectors made money was to raise taxes and keep some for themselves. No neighbor liked Levi. This is Peter's hometown. This is just bad team. You're putting two guys that hate each other on the same team. 
The choice of Levi, Levi is highly suspect, but for grace. But for what Jesus is saying by doing it. That every one of us here are worth fighting for. That every one of us. I love that he picked Matthew. That means he can pick me. And you. Well, he picks Matthew, he picks Levi, and Levi follows him. And Levi does something awesome, as far as I'm concerned. He makes a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table. He gets all of his sinful friends, all of his failing friends, and he gets them into a room, and Jesus is in there, and it offends. I mean, he's got at the same time the elite from the towns waiting to talk to him, and Jesus would rather hang with the sinners than hang with the elite. Anybody here happy about that? I am too. Well, it, not everybody was happy about it. Levi has this incredible opportunity where Jesus wants to be in his home and wants to meet his friends and wants to be part of his life. And don't you know that Jesus wants to be part of your life and wants to be part of your friendships and wants to redeem them? But we compartmentalize in our approach of God and say, yes, Lord, if you want to, you can enter my life, but I'd like to control it, and we'd like to do it on Sunday mornings and maybe Wednesday nights, but please don't mess with my work. Matthew is saying, Lord, enter my life, and, and Jesus is happy to. Well, the tax collector and the sinners were the tax collectors and the sinners were an offense to the Pharisees and the scribes. The Pharisees and the scribes are the elite in Jerusalem. They are politically powerful. They are religiously powerful. They are financially powerful. And they are grumbling at the disciples. Your, your, your master is making a mistake here. Careful. Don't make enemies of us. And here's their complaint. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? This is my complaint. My complaint is, why do you hang with the wrong people? The right people are right outside. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You read that and you might think Jesus is saying, well, these are the sick people and you guys are healthy. And because you guys are healthy, I'm going to go over here with the sick people. We're just, you know, divide and conquer, right? You guys don't need my help. I'm going to go where the help is needed most. That isn't it. Let me read to you what Jesus said on the last week of his life of the Pharisees and the scribes. Matthew 23. This is in the seven woes. I am giving you just a little piece of it. It's not pretty. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, and the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within you are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." Outside, they appeared righteous, but every one of them knew in their heart of hearts that there was blackness in their hearts. And what they couldn't give away was the perception of righteousness. 
And there was an invitation early in his career where he says, I came to heal the sick, not the healthy. And when he says that, the ones who were claiming to be healthy should have run up and said, I'm sick too. Me too, Lord. And integrity, humility, tenacity, and integrity. As they pray this, there should be an integrity. What if I were to apologize that morning for stealing $1,000 out of your checking? And later in the afternoon, you get a second alert that that same night, I had taken another 1000 out of your savings. And basically, in my apology, all I was saying is, I am sorry that I got caught. I am sorry for what you know. By the way, how much do you know? And I will apologize based on what you found out. Would you receive that apology? Is that an apology that's satisfying to you? Why do you think that apology would be satisfying to the living God? And don't you know he knows everything? Don't you know that Jesus knew who he was talking to? He knew their hearts. He knew their hatred. He knew their lack of mercy. He knew their lack of grace. He knew that they were using God's name to gain financially and power over people. And he was still offering to bring them healing. There isn't a person here that he isn't offering healing to right now. Help and, and entering into your life and changing it and, and restoring it and redeeming it. Do you even want that? Or is it just talk? So I would ask, would you accept an apology from me if it lacked integrity? Would you accept an apology from me if it lacked tenacity? Would you accept an apology from me if it lacked humility? I'm so glad that Jesus is a friend of sinners. Because I'm a sinner who needs help. That's the truth. But every time, I mean, for us, the relationship might not be restored because you might not like, be like Jesus and forgiving. Every time we come right, he forgives. Every time we come right, he restores. It's his heart. It's in his heart to restore us. The problem's in us. The problem's in me. Jesus will say yes to the deepest yearnings of your heart. Cleansing, forgiving, and ultimately communion with him. truth is that this is the battleground that I've struggled with my whole life. The truth is that so often I come into God's presence and don't get what I desperately need. Because I qualify my apology. There's no tenacity in my approaching him. I don't act like I need it. In essence, I'm asking the question, Lord, what's the least I have to do to get the bare minimums from you? What would it be like 
if we as a church rose up and said, Lord, we need you. We need you more than anything else that we need. Teach us to pray. Forgive us for our failures. A broken and a contrite heart, O oh Lord, thou will not despise. Let's pray.